Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Good to scan the room and see uh, some folks who've maybe been away for at least a week or two over summer, sometimes more, perhaps less. But uh, it's good to be in this space with you again this morning. My name's Nelson. I'm one of the pastors here at Artisan Church. And I don't know how you're feeling coming into this month called September and this idea of rounding the corner from one season and into another. I I don't know if you know this, but there are those who have strong feelings about the fact that summer is coming to a close. Uh, Denial is fairly prominent. Uh, Some, while they might not be denying the arrival of fall, they will object if you start saying that summer is over before it is technically over. Again, that's maybe a news flash to some of us. I don't know if you know about this, but Instagram is probably good as place as any to witness the spectrum of feelings around this phenomenon. Someone that you might recognize um, posted this the other day, and the caption reads, everyone's all like, bye-bye summer, and I'm over here like, guys, we still have 20 more days. Beach barbecues and summer sunsets, yes, please. Next image, and there's also a hashtag, it's not over till it's over. Um, Others can't wait for what's next. Here's an example of that one. Also a post you may have recognized this week. Um, Sailing out of August is the caption reads, and into my favorite time of year, bring me brisk morning walks, cozy cups of tea, and all the sweaters. Oh, autumn, I'm so excited to see you. Even the use of autumn, right? You can tell it's an autumn sort of lover. So looking outside this morning, we may want to add gumboots, Gore-Tex jackets, and all the umbrellas, um, but I don't, I don't want to digress too far here lest we find ourselves embroiled in a heated round of either or, and being a peacemaker nine on the Enneagram, I can of course see the merit of both perspectives. This much I know, uh, however we feel about it, these are days when we're all embarking on newness in some form. This is true in our shared life as a community. September means a bunch of things, including a renewal of our fall rhythms of our various groups, our neighborhood groups. It's a chance to join a group if you're not a part of one already, and for those who are, to resume uh, meeting weekly. A new table group will start in October, and group spiritual direction is about to begin. It's also an opportunity for fresh participation in what we call our teams, our service teams, to get involved by serving in some way. So stay tuned for more on this. We'll say more near the end of today's gathering. But another way that we're embarking on newness is with a a new teaching series. We'll be spending, and I want to speak precisely here, the remainder of summer and the majority of fall in a New Testament book called Acts. So why Acts? Um, Well, there's one reason, because we were sitting back uh, in, I think it was early spring, around, around the table as a preaching team, and uh, Steph mentioned we should do acts. So really, it's, it's, it's her fault. Whatever happens in this series, it's Steph's fault that we're doing acts. It's the number one reason. Here's a, f- here's a few other ones. I think there are some that will emerge as well as we, as we go. But a few reasons I want to summarize by three words. Scripture, spirit, and seasons. So what do I mean by Scripture. Well, it's a high value for us as a community in our Sunday preaching and teaching to balance topical or thematic or what we call practice series with biblical books. So we began 2019 with a practice series on our rhythms of life, looking at our directions of up and in and with and out. And then we started in on the Apostles' Creed, which is where we camped for a number of months. We took a hiatus for a short practice series on worship, 
And then once we finished the creed, we spent a few weeks exploring some films from a theological perspective. And so now we arrive and we're going to embark on Acts. Now, this is to say we want all our preaching, of course, no matter what we're looking at, to be anchored in Scripture and to be grounded in sound theology. But we also want to preach through particular books of the Bible, the whole of which, in our Anabaptist tradition, we believe was inspired by God through the Holy Spirit. And that that same spirit guides us in our interpretation of scripture. So we both invite and we trust the spirit to be present with us as we engage in this portion of God's written word. So scripture is one big reason we're doing a series in Acts. Another is spirit. And I want to frame this reason with a quote from Barbara Brown Taylor. Reflecting on what happened when the spirit fell on the early Christ followers on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, she says this. The Holy Spirit had entered into them the same way it had entered into Mary, the mother of Jesus, and for the same reason. It was time for God to be born again. Not in one body this time, but in a body of believers who would receive the breath of life from their Lord and pass it on, using their own bodies to distribute the gift. The book of Acts is the story of their adventures, which is why I like to think of it as the gospel of the Holy Spirit. In the first four books of the New Testament, we learn the good news of what God did through Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, we learn the good news of what God did through the Holy Spirit by performing artificial resuscitation on a room full of well-intentioned bumblers and turning them into a force that changed the history of the world. So as a community, in various ways, we have been seeking to increase our dependency on the Holy Spirit. For over a year, we've been considering the theme of the river as a metaphor for God's life, the life of the Spirit flowing in and through us. In part, this has looked like trying to keep prayer in front of us, to see prayer as our working method. By continuing to remind ourselves that the church was never intended to be a social club that simply holds meetings and does religious things, but a community that frequently, frequently encounters the living God. So to recognize that joining God and the renewal of all things first means that we join God. And to remember that any lasting change we want to affect in our neighborhood, in our city, in our world first requires that we ourselves are changed. Or to use Barbara Brown Taylor's image, we could put it this way. If we ever hope to use our bodies to pass along the breath of God's life, we first need to receive his breath regularly and often. So one tangible way I think we can do so is by spending time in Acts. This book that tells a good story. The story of how Holy Spirit breath filled, empowered a group of imperfect people to follow Christ and carry out their mandate of bearing witness to his life and teaching. Scripture, spirit, third reason, in a word, seasons. And here I'm thinking, as we did at the start, about changing seasons. This is newness of another kind. Artisan's about to have its 10th birthday. Can you believe it? Some of us have been around that long or almost that long. Other of us, others of us, it could be your first time here, even this morning, but we've been around by grace almost 10 years, double digits. Now, in one sense, that's a big deal. We, we want to celebrate appropriately all that God has done among us. But in another sense, 10 years is really not a long time. And God isn't finished with us yet. What will the next 10 years look like? What is God wanting to do in 
and through our particular embodiment of God's life in our city? What will our story be? I think the book of Acts may have something to say to us for such a time as this. So before we open the text for this morning, I want to invite you to pray with me. And as we do, to open the eyes and ears of your hearts to listen with me for what God wants to convey to us. So we're going to hold silence for just a couple moments. And in the silence, I invite you to listen. Is there a single word you're sensing that may hold something of God's heart or intent for us as we begin this journey of Acts? So let's just be still for a moment and listen in to what the Spirit might be whispering to your heart, to your imagination. And then I'll invite us, uh, anyone who might wish, to just speak their single word. And then I'll close and we'll open up the text together. Let's be still. Come Holy Spirit. For those that wish, is there a word you're hearing, sensing, intuiting? Speak it out. In the words of the song that sometimes we sing here, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place, fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for to be overcome by your presence, Lord. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. If you have a chair Bible close by, I invite you to uh, take it. And if you'd like to open it to Acts chapter 1. And we're going to attempt kind of two sermons in one today. I need to introduce the, the whole of the series in some way. And also we want to dive into the particularities of this text. So I'm going to try to use the text to do that first part. Uh, so if you'd like to read along uh, with me, Acts 1, verses 1 to 14. Hear the word of the Lord. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion... While he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the dates or times the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven... We'll come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. 
they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So a little bit of background to cover before we get uh, deeper into the text. Bear with me for just a few moments. What's clear from the outset is that Acts is the second of a two-part work. So a narrative that began in Luke's gospel, and now Acts is moving it forward. So the opening verses both summarize what took place beforehand, and they set the stage for what's to come. Now Luke is widely accepted as the one who wrote the book. So here's some relevant details about Luke. He was a well-traveled retainer of the social elite. What do I mean? Well, it's likely that Theophilus, to whom Luke is writing, we'll say more about him in a moment, is Luke's patron made it possible for Luke to spend all this time traveling with the apostles and writing this stuff down. Luke was well-educated. He is both at home in the Greco-Roman world and intimately familiar with its Jewish subculture. So he's in a good position to speak to both audiences. He is deeply concerned about religious matters within Roman society. So there's this subtext that runs through the book, and that is that Christianity and the Roman state can coexist peacefully, which, as we know, wasn't always the case. One writer said this about Luke. He is a cosmopolitan person with a more universalistic vision of the potential scope of impact of his faith, both up and down the social ladder, and also across geographical, ethnic, and other social boundaries. So we'll see this vision materialize as uh, we walk through the story that Luke is telling, beginning with this person Luke dedicated the book to, Theophilus. So you'll recognize this, most of us, as a Greek name. So right away, we see that Luke is not about protecting, preserving the story for insiders alone, for born and bred Jewish people. He is deeply intent on holding out the way of Jesus to a non-Jew. What's especially interesting to me is that is what Theophilus means. Does anyone know? How's your Greek? Lover of God. Exactly. God loves or lover of God. So there was an individual person named Theophilus, quite possibly Luke's patron, to whom Acts was dedicated. But in another sense, the book was addressed more broadly to God lovers. God lovers, a term I may or may not start using to address you all as we go through the series. Anyway, um, so if you love God, this book is for you, is another way we could, we could approach this. Another bit of background, anytime we engage in a biblical book, we need to know what genre we're reading. Knowing the genre goes a long way toward uh, being able to interpret it properly. So by way of genre, Acts is history. It's Hellenistic history, however, not modern history. Now, of all the New Testament writers, Luke is most likely to be the one who refers to contemporary events and persons. That's because Luke wants us to know that God is at work with real people in this world. His focus on secular history shows that a huge part of his agenda is to show how the gospel is for all nations, that God's concern for human beings is limitless. Luke models his work on that of classical historians like Thucydides and also uses Greek and literary conventions like prologues and travel narratives, also speeches. Greek historians wrote speeches for their main characters. There are 24 of them in Acts. They make up about one-third of Luke's story. So speeches convey insights, 
about the narrative, about meaning, the meaning of events, and the character of the one speaking. So all of these features of Hellenistic history and more appealed to the Gentiles to whom Luke was writing. It made the gospel of Jesus more accessible. So next, what's the book about? What's the plot? Verse 1, again, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So besides Jesus, the key word in that phrase is began. Began. So the implication is that here in the second book, he will write about what Jesus continued to do and to teach after his ascension, particularly through the apostles he had chosen. N.T. Wright sums up, sums up Acts in this way. It is all about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. Jesus is at the center, which is where he remains today as the story continues to be told in and through us by the power of the Spirit. So in that sense, Acts is like a play in which we are invited to become actors ourselves. The curtain is raised, and we find ourselves in the middle of the action. So as the curtain comes up, notice two key things in the prologue that Luke wants us to grab hold of so that we can play our part in character. That is, in keeping with the nature of the unfolding drama. Verse 3, one more time. After his suffering, that's Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. First thing, Luke's view of the world is based on a resurrected Jesus. So in summarizing the closing chapters of his gospel, he revisits scenes where Jesus met his followers after being raised from the dead. It really was him. He, he really was alive, richly alive, in a transformed body that could eat and drink as well as walk and talk. What's his point? His point is that without the resurrection, there is no gospel. Without it, all we'd be left with is the sad and glorious memory of a truly great but ultimately failed teacher and would-be Messiah. But gratefully, the news is good. As one writer put it, the resurrection of the Jesus who died under the weight of the world's evil is the foundation of the new world, God's new world, whose opening scenes Luke is describing. Second thing he wants us to grab hold of and is so keen to get to that he puts it right up front, and that's the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Four and five. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So you'll have much more to say, of course, but Luke already is insisting that spirit is present when Jesus is teaching his followers about what's coming. And more importantly, that what they are about to experience in the spirit is as a new powerful reality, or new and powerful reality in their lives. It's going to be kind of like John's baptism, which was one of repentance and renewal. It'll be like that, only instead of being plunged into water, they're going to be plunged into God's life and breath. So that's a really brief thumbnail background sketch. So what's left to look at today falls into three sections. Commission received, verses 6 to 8. Christ ascended, verses 9 to 11. And committed to prayer, verses 12 to 14. So lest you're looking at your watches and thinking, how are we going to get through all of that? We're going to spend the majority of our time on the first part. So verses 6 to 8. Let's look at those again. 
Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, verse 6 should actually give us some comfort because who among us has never missed the point of what Jesus was on about? Whether it was a story in the Gospels we didn't grasp or something from an event in our own personal history, it doesn't really matter. When you're not getting something, it's good to know you're not alone. So that's when I read verse 6, I'm like, okay, good. That's what's going on here. The disciples gather around Jesus and ask the wrong question. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What were they really saying? Lord, is it go time? Please tell us a military coup is about to happen, and we're finally going to get these cruel Romans off our backs. I wonder if to Jesus' ears this sounded like a bunch of small children in the backseat of a car shouting, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Now, having said that, it's important to cut these guys some slack. And what I mean by that is let's first understand the apostle, or the word apostle, is one word Luke regularly uses to describe the twelve or as they were at this moment, 11 on the heels of Judas' death. So these 12 were the ones Jesus himself had chosen to be his special witnesses. We were reminded of this in verse 2, that Jesus chose them. Why 12? Well, again, the number is clear to anyone who knows Jewish culture and history. There had been 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus then, in choosing 12 close followers to encircle him, is revealing that God had directed him to renew and restore the people of Israel. So on one level, it isn't surprising that these 12 of all people had that question on their minds. Is it go time? Are we there yet? Like, we know our history. We know what's coming. So given that background, it's easier to understand why Jesus didn't respond like an exasperated parent. How did he respond? It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. So the question's understandable, but it's still the wrong question. And Jesus makes that clear too. It's like he's saying, in the kingdom I'm bringing, there are things you need to concern yourselves with and there are things you don't. Times and dates belong in the second category. So if I could turn back the clock on the history of the church, I would dearly love to somehow redirect the emphasis on end times theology toward a renewed focus on these times. Are you with me? Because as I look around, I still see a lot of unhealthy obsession regarding times and dates. Sometimes it feels like we never heard Acts 1 verse 7. So can we agree to hear Jesus on this together? Here, now, absorb it. Like, I like how Eugene renders verse 7. Eugene Peterson. We're kind of on first name because... Jesus told them, you don't get to know the time. Timing is the Father's business. You don't get to know the time. Timing is the Father's business. Times and dates, not our job. Then he says, what you'll get is the Holy Spirit. And now we're cooking with gas. Verse 8, again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So see, in a sense, the apostles were asking a power question. 
when you know exactly when something is going to take place, that's powerful, right? Is this the time? Are we there yet? Do we get to know when? And Jesus' response, in a sense, meets them where they are. No, you don't get to know when. That form of power is not for you to possess. It belongs to God alone. But here's what you will get. You will get empowerment of a different kind. Empowerment to do what? To bear witness to me. To bear witness. Now, witness is, of course, a legal term. Think of a courtroom. At its most basic, we could break down to the definition of witness is someone who sees an event and reports what happened. Someone who sees an event and reports what happened. So two basic components to the act of bearing witness then. There's seeing and there's testifying. So what's Jesus telling the apostles? That the key tasks of spirit-infused humanity are not calculate and predict. They are see and speak. Not calculate and predict, but see and speak. And seeing and speaking, of course, are activities we engage in all the time. We're always bearing witness to someone, right, or to something. The question is, what or whom is my life bearing ultimate witness to? Now, I'm not saying, of course, that we should never talk about anything except Jesus. That would just be weird and not weird, and not weird in a good way. Jesus saw himself saw and talked about a lot of things besides himself. I am saying that the overall field of vision that I'm seeking to take in and the manner of my speaking, not just the content, ought to convey a clear sense that my life is not merely about me. That someone else is at the center. And that I get to joyfully spend my life gently and sometimes boldly pointing the way to that someone. There's more, though. Notice the text does not say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you must go out witnessing from door to door and on street corners and in stadiums. What does it say? You will receive power to be my witnesses, to become something new, to become different, a witness, a noun. So if the Spirit has visited you and filled you, if you have been an open and willing recipient of God's very life and breath, If you feel compelled to wait and watch and pray, come Holy Spirit, then your primary identity is now this. You are a witness to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't to say that one's being a witness can never take the form of speaking publicly, whether it's in a neighborhood, a church building, or an arena. There are times, of course, when that is exactly what's appropriate and what's needed, and what the Spirit is compelling us to do. But being a witness isn't a daily or weekly task. It's not a switch we can turn off or on. It's something we're meant to embody in all times and places. And our journey through the book of Acts is going to school us in this. Let's fast forward for one quick example. Acts 4, Peter and John are brought before the religious elite in Jerusalem because they've been speaking about Jesus, and that, of course, presents a threat to the Jewish clergy. And in this case, they'd healed someone in the name of Christ, and the church leaders could plainly see it was legit. So they confer among themselves. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. 
But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. You want us to stop teaching? Bearing witness to Jesus as though we have a choice? Yeah, no. It's a hard pass. We can't help it. And this is what Jesus promises to his apostles and to God lovers everywhere. You will receive power when the living God fills you with Holy Spirit breath. Power to be my witnesses. So what's the intended effect of this Holy Spirit life breath? that transforms willing recipients from well-intentioned bumblers into witnesses to Jesus. Well, for one thing, we know the scope is significant. It's meant to begin in Jerusalem, to spread through Judea, Samaria, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Um, This phrase, by the way, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, kind of functions as a loose outline of the book. It's a bit of an image that shows concentric circles that moves chronologically through these geographic areas and expanding outwards. So for this part of the series, uh, through this fall season, we'll be mainly in Jerusalem. But where Jesus' witnesses are to engage is a different question than what the effect he wants them to have. So it's not a question that our text addresses directly, but it's one we need to ask, because this too is our mandate. Remember, we're actors in the drama, so we're carrying this forward. So we need to wrestle with what being an authentic, spirit-infused witness to Jesus means. In our day, in this place, how do we bear witness to Jesus in non-colonial ways, for example? Is the intent that everyone to the ends of the earth, quote, becomes a Christian? I don't think so at least not in the sense that some would have us understand the word Christian. Stay with me on this. The term Christian only appears three times in Scripture. Two of them are in the book of Acts. So over in chapter eleven twenty-six, Luke reports that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. By contrast, the more common way the early disciples in Acts referred to themselves was as followers of the way capital W. This phrase, the way, is used six times in the book of Acts, far more frequently than Christian. So what's interesting is that Christian wasn't a self-chosen identifier. They were called Christians, which again means little Christs, by outsiders who observed how they were living their lives. Can I get an amen? (laughs) A couple. It's good. (laughs) This raises an interesting question for me, which is this. Ought we to be the ones who call ourselves Christians, or is that a task better left for someone else? I was listening to Jonathan Martin's new podcast this week called The Zeitcast, and in particular, his interview with my good friend Brad Jerzak. Some of you know as well, or you've read his books, or have heard him speak possibly, um, possibly even here, not at Japanese Hall, but in our former locations. At one point, they're discussing self-proclaimed Christians in North America, and Brad says this. I had to capture the whole thing. This is three-slide quote, everyone, so buckle up. 
He said, this is a real concern I have. You get Christ-following 12-steppers, Christ-following Muslims, because they've met him. Only because they've met him. And then you've got those who can tick off the creed, but have they met Jesus? I know many Christians who are not Christ-followers. And one of the ways I know that is when I quote the words of Jesus to them, they reject them. I'm like, wait a minute. We've got this parable in the Gospels about two sons. The father says, I want you to go out in the field. And the son says, I will, but he doesn't. And the other says, no, I'm not going to, but he does. Which one is the Christ follower? And this is a picture of, let's say, Gandhi. Gandhi was absolutely not a Christian. He never claimed to be a Christian. In fact, he specifically said, I'm not a Christian. Except, wait, he picks up and he's reading the Sermon on the Mount every day and deliberately obeying it. Who's the follower? The peacemaker Hindu or the warmonger Christian? That's what that parable is about. And so, we need to make sure somehow that we're facilitating Christ following within Christianity. And somehow that has to include encounter. Why is it that a sentence like, we have to make sure we're facilitating Christ following within Christianity, sounds revolutionary? Does it sound that way to anyone else? The early followers of the way would be saying, um, yeah, what else would we be doing? Whatever the intended impact of being witnesses is, we can be sure it isn't about signing people up for some exclusive club so long, so long as they could tick boxes on a doctrinal statement. It has to be about practicing the way of Jesus, bearing witness to it, seeing both people and our planet the way he saw them, saying what he said while paying just as much attention to how he said it, doing what he did as the Spirit enables Here's my paraphrase of Acts 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit breathes life into you. And you will embody my story in your seeing and your speaking in neighborhoods, cities, nations, and wherever you go. What would it look like to reclaim this mode of being witnesses? And when someone asks you if you're Christian, to say, I don't know, you tell me. Okay, got to keep going. What do the disciples know at this point? They know the Spirit's coming, but that they need to wait for it. They know that the Spirit's going to empower them to bear witness to Jesus. They also know the Spirit can't come until Jesus ascends. So, verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. I mentioned I'd be spending most of our time on verses 6 to 8, so, and this is not to gloss over the ascension or to avoid the questions it raises. I'll say a few things in just a moment, but I did preach a sermon on the ascension not too long ago during our series on the Apostles' Creed, which you can find on our website if you're so inclined. But mainly what I want to say today about the ascended Christ is to comment not on its historicity or how it happened or was it literal, but on its significance for those who saw it then 
and for us. So recall that back in the Gospels, Jesus hinted that the Spirit would be coming upon his departure and that this was actually going to be better for the disciples. And they're like, how can that be better? But that's now it's happened, and they, like us, were left with the question, why does it matter that Jesus ascended? It matters because through it, we remember that Jesus, the ascended one, is still alive. That he's fully incarnated. That he is still in bodily form, reigning as part of the community of triune God in heaven. A place that lies somehow beyond, but influences everything that happens here and now. N.T. Wright says heaven is kind of like the control room for earth. The ascension matters to us because the ascended one is now our fully sympathetic representative in that control room. Someone who's fully human like us now sits at the right hand of the Father mediating on our behalf. And Jesus' promise as he left was that in his absence he would send the gift of the Holy Spirit to continue his work on earth. And he calls it power. You'll receive power. You, y'all, empowered with his very life, very life of God. Brian Zond puts it this way, the ascension of Christ does not lead to the absence of Christ, but to his cosmic presence everywhere. This is why the risen Christ says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in the ascension, Christ now fills all things everywhere with himself. There is now no place where Christ is not, and there is no domain over which Jesus is not Lord. So the apostles are like, all right, stuff's getting real. What do they do? Verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying By the way, Sabbath day's walk, what is that all about? Well, it was the Sabbath, and one kilometer was the limit that you could walk. So it's about a kilometer away from where they was. So, fun fact. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Also, sidebar. Luke takes special care to name the fact that there are women with them. Other Greek historians wouldn't have done that. It wouldn't have mattered. Women didn't even have, their voices didn't even count in court. So when you're talking about bearing witness or testifying to something, this is a big deal that this happens. So yes, a bunch of men are named, as would be expected in a highly patriarchal kind of order. But Luke makes sure uh, to, to say women were with them, joining constantly in prayer. So... Let me ask you this. When you're told that you're about to receive a precious gift, but that you need to wait for it, what's your first instinct? Is it to pray? I'm just curious. You've already been told you're getting it, so what would be the point of praying? Well, maybe the purpose of prayer isn't always to ask God for stuff, is the point I'm making. Maybe it's more about preparing our hearts to receive the gifts God's promised in the way they're meant to be received. Maybe prayer is less about acquisition and more about attunement. 
Here's one of my favorite quotes on prayer from Eugene Peterson. Another will is greater, wiser, and more intelligent than my own, so I wait. Waiting means that there is another whom I trust and from whom I receive. My will, important and essential as it is, finds a will that is more important, more essential. In prayer, we are aware that God is in action and that when the circumstances are ready, when others are in the right place, and when my heart is prepared, I will be called into action. Waiting in prayer is a disciplined refusal to act before God acts. Waiting is our participation in the process that results in the time fulfilled. This begs a bunch of questions. How do you know when God acts? I want to suggest that the answer to that question is something we can't know unless we actually do the waiting. You can't skip ahead. Guys, Acts is going to be an exciting journey. It's a story about all that Jesus is continuing to do and teach. and includes us. We get to participate in the drama. So it's our turn to propel the narrative forward in the power of the Spirit, to wait, to pray, to receive, to act, to bear witness to Jesus in all our seeing and our speaking. How might we take our place in the action? As we prepare to come to the table, I want to take some moments again, as we did at the beginning, to be still, to be silent, to wait in prayer together, and again to invite you if there's a word that you're hearing, maybe something that you heard in the message today. Maybe it's another statement of, or an image that you might be sensing that the Spirit wants to offer us to symbolize God's intent among us. Let's wait in prayer for just a moment. I'll invite you to speak your single words, and then we'll go to the table. Holy Spirit, you are still welcome here. We invite you... <clears throat> as we embark on this journey through the book of Acts, to be present, to illumine our understanding, to animate our bodies, to enliven our wills, our spirits, to bear witness to you. Jesus, we, help, we ask for um, the ability to see you in fresh ways, to recognize the truly good news that you came to speak and to be. Fall on us here, Holy Spirit, in our midst. Fill us anew for this season. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to the table, recognize that there are different uh, practices and different ways of, um, of doing the communion moment. And so one thing that helps us in our community is to remind ourselves each week of why we're doing this first, and then I'll say a little bit more about the how. So I invite you to join with me in the bold text as we walk through our table litany. The gospel is, our, is the good news that God our Father, the creator out of his great love for us.